Well, thank you, Paul, and the worship team for leading us in, uh, in worship this morning, in musical worship. Uh, my name is Andrew. I have the pleasure of being one of the pastors here, um, but I am not normally in this position here. So thankful for the opportunity for that. But if you're visiting with us this morning and you think, huh, come back next week, <laughs> come back, come back next week. Um, Yesterday was a busy day around here, a lot of, lot of activities that I feel like this month is just that way, talking with some of the people, just every, every week is packed with goodness, whether it's uh, the men's event that we had yesterday, and thankful to the Lord for safety there. Um, if anybody has a good clay pigeon recipe, we killed a lot of clay pigeons yesterday, and uh, I still haven't found a good way to cook those things. By the way, they're not alive, so if you're offended by that, I'm so sorry, it's not, it's just a joke. Uh, and then uh, the, the Grand Prix here for Awana, Some, uh, a new family of conquerors in the realm of fast cars. My kids were depressed again, year after year, the development of character, perseverance, hope, and all kinds of other things. Um, but I was just, I was thinking about that and just uh, gro- growing up, you know how growing up your house appears to be magical, like you put clothes in a hamper. And then all of a sudden you come back and they're, they're cleaned and they're in your, you're back in your drawers. And, and dinners appear and dishes get washed. And you don't have to do any of those things as a kid. You're like, this house is great. <laughs> and then you start growing up and your parents start giving you responsibilities. And you're like, this house is a lot of work. And then you get out on your own. You're like, this house is way too much work. Um, and I was just thinking of, that's, that's honestly very much the life of a church. Like some, sometimes we show up to places where we're like, man, the coffee's made, the donuts are cut. I just show up, I eat my breakfast burrito, I imbibe whatever's going on, and it's just a wonderful place. But there's a lot of work that goes on around here week in and week out. And I, I'm so thankful for the people who set up, for the people who cook, for the people who awoke before the rise of dawn to make sure everything was set up. And just, just knowing all that goes on here, uh, this honestly, this is a, this is a house, <laughs> And it takes many members to do, to do the work of the ministry that God has called us to. And so uh, just for those who have been serving and, and continue serving uh, and don't often get a shout out or a thanks, we're very thankful for every aspect of ministry. And uh, especially coming out of the season of this past few years, I feel like we're trying to get back to the scope of ministry that we were before. We're out of shape. It's like, oh man. Where'd our team go? So just kind of all of those things. So just uh, very thankful for that. Before we get into this passage today, uh, we, have a, we have a practice here of picking a book of the Bible and going through it in whole. And what that means is we come up to topics that we probably wouldn't have picked as a church to cover. And this morning's topic is, is one that's um, it's, it's around the, the topic of human sexuality and the ways the world and the church have gotten that wrong. And one of the things that we want to respect here is parental authority, that if, if you're parents of kids, and we know we have some, some sixth graders and up or, or even younger in here this morning, um, we, we don't want to violate your right as a parent to talk about things that you're not ready to talk to your children about. And so if that's you this morning and you want to know where we are and read it real quick, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. Um, but if, if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I'm not sure I want to talk about these topics yet. That's okay. We're not going to try and be explicit in any detail. But if you're just sitting here going like, maybe not yet, um, that's okay. Feel free at any time to just stand up with your family and walk out. We respect that. We're thankful for parents and your decisions that you make uh, with your children. At the same time, it's God's word. And God's word deals with everything that we face as a society. And so we, we 
believe and know that it's important that we cover this together today as a, as a church. And the context of what we're coming into today in, in chapter 6, if we've been going through this, this book, in chapter 5, there's kind of this, there's this sexual immorality that was even looked down upon in the Corinthian culture, which is surprising. Um, and, and so Paul instructs the church of how to deal with that. And then last week we started talking about lawsuits that happen, even between people in the church. And he talks about how to deal with that. And this day uh, we're talking again more about sexual immorality within the church and how to deal with it. And constantly what we're seeing throughout this book is God's desire that, that his, his gathering of his people, the church, that's what we are, we are the church, those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord, we're the church, he cares about our community holiness. He cares about the way that, that we live together and amongst one another, not only as a community of believers here, but in the midst of the world that, that sees us as well. So that's the context of, of what we're coming into today in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles and would like to turn there or click there or swipe there or however you get to your Bible, um, it'd be good to be able to follow along this morning as we, as we walk through this together. But let's Pause now for prayer and just ask that the Lord would be at work amongst us as we read and study his word together. God, I thank you for this time that we have. I thank you for this book. And I thank you that in your grace that you have given to us your word, and that is sufficient for all that pertains to life and godliness. And I pray that as we walk through this passage together as a church, Lord, that your spirit would be at work. That all of us would see and understand how the principles of this word apply in our hearts and lives as we long and desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that in him is salvation, in him is life, in him is joy. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that the words that I speak would be from you, that your church would be built up today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Words can be taken out of context, can't they? And they can be taken and misapplied. You think about that, just a, just a simple phrase like sharing is, sharing is caring, right? Until cold and flu season. It's just, just a simple, simple example there, but just to see how, how the, the right idea can be taken in the wrong direction. And that that's really the premise of the passages that we're looking at today is that there are these sayings that are truthful in the right context and bound by the right framework, but if they're, they're taken and they're applied in other ways, they lead to places that were, they were never intended to lead. And so we can get in trouble as believers when we take these, these sayings or these, uh, these pithy maxims, these short proverbs, and we, we mis, misapply them. And so we're going to begin in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Normally, we honor the, the, the word of the Lord by standing up as we read this morning. We're going to be working through it kind of section by section, so 
I just ask that you honor it as you're, as you're seated there by giving it your full attention. But as we walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, the first saying we see is in verse 12, where Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And, and here as we begin this, this passage this morning, he gives us this statement that all things are, are lawful for me, but he also gives us these guardrails that keep us on track in matters of, of freedom and liberty. Uh, if, if you've been with us throughout this thing, you know that Paul's not saying, everything's okay. He, he said enough throughout the letter, we know that's not the context. But are they, there are these matters of, of Christian freedom where we have liberty to make decisions, where the scripture doesn't actually give us any specific command or imperative, like don't do that, do that, don't do that, do that. There are matters of Christian liberty and, and freedom, but there are guardrails that, that keep us on, on track. And so one of the questions that we need to be asking as we consider matters of, of freedom and the decisions that we're making is, is it profitable? Is it profitable? There's this, this big statement that they have, all things are, are lawful for me, and a huge contrast in there, but is it profitable? Is it beneficial? Does it bring together? And one of the things that I want you to notice, if you're looking at your text, notice what Paul does not say. He does not write, but not all things are profitable to me. He says not all things are profitable, because be Christians, God is not concerned merely with right decisions for you. However, he's considered with right decisions from you for the sake of the community around you. Does that make sense? Like you can make right decisions for you that are wrong for everybody around you. Oftentimes as a father, I feel like the right decision for me is, is wrong decision for my family. I'm gonna come home. I'm gonna take a nap. Sounds like a really good decision. You can't point to a verse that says no. But I would argue that my wife would say, I don't think that's profitable. And you might not wake up. <laughs> if you know my wife, you know she's far godlier than that. But at the same time, it's a, it's a very helpful and useful question to ask of ourselves. You think about somebody who has some kind of a food allergy. You have a peanut allergy. Are you going to eat peanuts? It's permitted. It is my right. Yes. But you'd be a fool to do it. And you know that. And life is miserable because of it. And so this is a helpful and useful thing for us to consider. I was thinking of, of examples about this, of how is something, how, how should we consider this idea? How would this, uh, this apply? And I want to apply it to myself. There are no commands uh, from the scripture about what time to be in bed. And for me specifically, there are no, no commands from, from scripture about what time to be on bed, in bed on, on Saturday night, right? Anybody want to contest that? Saturday night, bedtime. Anybody? So if I want to stay up throughout all hours of the night watching Wipeout, you guys seen Wipeout? <laughs> Huge obstacle course where people just get destroyed. It's really funny. It's wonderful. <laughs> Highly entertaining. But if I wanted to stay up all night until 5 a.m. in the morning watching that show, there's, there's, no, there's nothing impeding my Christian freedom. None, none of you would come to me and go, Andrew, I want to just confront you over the sinful way you're living by staying up till 5 a.m. and watching Wipeout. 
as Hezekiah said. You can't point to a verse and passage. But at the same time, if we think about that from the impact that decision would have when I show up here on Sunday morning, what's the impact? Is it beneficial to you all? No, your, your worship leader is going to be a little foggy, isn't he? A little foggy. And the impact it has throughout my day with, with my family, <laughs> people's heads are going to get bit off. That's just what's going to happen. You start to think about the impact it has on like when I see my neighbor, I'm like, ah, oh, I don't want to go talk to them. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And so we start considering this, this question, just, just a simple example like that, and, and it applies to really every decision that we make in our lives. And this is not legalism for us to do. We, we don't hand down laws as a church about issues of freedom. But this is one of those guardrails to remember that God is, is not merely concerned to create a community that does no wrong. Okay? That, that's half of the equation. That Christianity, absolutely, and following Jesus, we are a community that from God's perspective should do no wrong. But that's only half of the equation of the gospel. The other half of the equation of the gospel is that we would be a community that does what is right. Do you see? That we do what is beneficial and what is helpful and what is useful to this community, to this community of believers, to this community that we live in and amongst Question number one for us to consider, is it profitable to those around me? Is it beneficial? The question that he asks after this is, is really, will it, will it dominate me? Will it dominate? That there are certain aspects of our lives that we're, we're permitted to do, but we recognize the power that sometimes those things can hold over our lives. I think all of us could think of somebody else who's been dominated by something, right? It's easy to recognize in other people, whether it's somebody who's been struggled with substance abuse. It's an easy one to kind of think of and go, man, yeah, that's a tragedy. And yet all around us, there are, there are, there are ways that, that people become enslaved and trapped and ensnared by, uh, if, we, if you will, lesser evils. It can be dominated by, by consumerism. Shopping, constantly buying new things and debt. Could be dominated by, by entertainment. Just always on your phone and video games and entertainment, the next thing that's coming. Could be dominated by our phones. Could be dominated by work. Dominated by, by social media and likes or followers or whatever's going on there. And all of these things, it shows that how we as people are prone to be, be dominated by the things that we actually desire. And, and it's a tragedy to see people be dominated by creative things. <laughs> and, and this is the amazing truth of the gospel, that he came to free us from being ruled by things and, and to break the power that things have over our lives through sin. And that as believers that he has set us free from the power of sin, he creates new desires within our hearts, he restores the dignity that we have as men and women who were never meant to be ruled by things in this world, but to rule this world. And as believers, we have to recognize and be careful and keep an eye 
that we never go back to being dominated by something. Even things you're free to do. That we never step back into that realm that Christ Jesus has set us free from. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and, or listening online and you, you feel trapped. And this is a right, the right place to be. This is the place where we preach the gospel. And the gospel is, is a good news message of freedom where Christ delivers us from the things that would trap and ensnare us. We don't escape them ourselves. You're sitting in, a, in the midst of a room of, of people whose lives have been transformed, whose lives are the living evidence. And just thinking about that, like if we all could just see the power of Jesus that has set us free and what he set us free from. It'd be embarrassing, wouldn't it? But it would be an amazing testimony of what Jesus does in the life of a person to release them. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you need to be saved, the message of Jesus is is one that he is the one that God has sent into the world to save and I would, love to, I would love to share more with, that, with you about that if you're interested in talking more about that or maybe you came with somebody this morning and you're like, I, I want to know how to be free. We would love to share that with you today. But these are the two guardrails that we begin our, our passage with. Uh, will it profit or will it dominate me? And then verse 13 moves into, into our next saying. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with, with both of them. And this statement really recognizes the temporary nature of, of life, that God created us, and God made, made certain organs for certain things. God made your stomach, and he made food, and those things, they go together. The stomach is for food, and, and food is for the stomach, and there will come a, pl- a point where those things will be, they'll cease, in the Old Testament, uh, the old Jewish law had a, had a bunch of laws about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. That was, that was a large part of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the covenant that God made with, with the Jews. But when Jesus came, he fulfilled that covenant and he initiated a new covenant between God and man. And in this new covenant, there's, there's a freedom in food. And so you can imagine Paul talking about Christian liberty and, and pointing to something like, like look, look, guys, there's no, there's no longer clean and unclean food. Why? The stomach is for food and the food is for stomach. And God's going to do a bo- away with both of them. In the coming kingdom of Jesus, neither food nor stomach will be necessary to sustain life. Don't get upset with me. I did not say there would not be food. But apparently this passage teaches us that there's something about the relationship that is here and now that is temporary and passing away. Does that make sense? It's transient. It's not eternal. And so if that's the case for the stomach, well, what about the rest of the body? The Corinthians, they were a people where food was not the only appetite they had. Does that make sense? Not getting too graphic. You're adults in this room, but you can consider the culture around us. People have appetites for other things that involve various organs of our body. So if the food is for stomach and the stomach is for food, well then, beginning to fill in the blanks. Which brings us to the problem that that Paul is addressing in, in the church this morning. 
And here in the second half of verse 13, we come to the heart of our passage. So let's read it together. Second half of verse 13. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. That's the phrase, if you don't remember anything else this morning, that you should walk away with, that you should memorize and anchor in the bedrock of your mind. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is is for the body. And here is beginning to see the heart of the problem as well as the solution. The problem is believers were applying the previous sayings to justify their sexual immorality. That's what this word immorality means here. It's talking about immorality of of a sexual nature. And over the past few weeks, we've covered in detail what some of those things were. In detail, what some of the things that they were doing were, were wrong. And we've discussed how this phrase immorality pertains to any sex that happens outside of God's original design of marriage between a husband and a wife. That was a lot of words. Let me sum it up. In God's design, sex belongs only in a marriage between a husband and wife. Anything outside of that falls under the umbrella of this word immorality or sexual immorality that we're looking at this morning. My friends, in our culture today, that is a contested claim. And that is a a big statement and a big topic. And you might, you might be sitting here, I would assume that there are people sitting here this morning uh, that would disagree. And I, I want you to know, I'm so glad you're here. I really am. And when we talk about these things as a church, and we can't cover the entirety of this issue every time it comes up in a passage like this, but I want you to understand that as a church, we don't approach these things because we don't like certain people. We don't approach these things because we think those people are the worst. We don't approach these things because we think it's just happening on out there and it would never happen in here. No, we assume that these issues that we're talking about happen here. That's why we address them. That's why God addresses them. Because they're things that people struggle with from Genesis until he returns in Revelation. So we're not angry. We don't hate people. But we want to preach the truth of God's word. And and honestly, I was thinking about this. God's word, if you spend enough time in it, you know what it'll do? It'll rub you the wrong way. Because it goes against us. And it reminds us, I'm not God. And I want to be. But our primary goal for us who have come to Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord is to help one another see that Jesus is Lord. And when people have embraced that truth, we seek together to live as he has called us to live. 
And so the problem here in Corinth is that they were connecting the wrong dots. And instead of using their bodies for the Lord, they were seeing the temporary nature of their bodies and using them for immorality. And so Paul's going to lay out three proofs and two commands that, that bring them back in line with the good news of Jesus Christ. Three proofs that the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And he's going to give them two commands that, that bring them back in line with the good news of Jesus. And so we're going to look and continue reading verses 14 through 20. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So let's look at this together. The, the first proof that Paul gives here, that the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and is that God raised Jesus, and God will raise you. He points to the resurrection. He says, you're you're thinking about the stomach and the body in the wrong relationship. Yes, the stomach and food are temporary, but what happened to the body of Jesus Christ? Church, what happened to the body of Jesus Christ? He was raised, right? He was raised. And, And what that helps us to understand is the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the grave means God cares about our bodily existence in a special and unique way. The fact that he sent his son into the world in the form of human flesh and Jesus took on humanity means there is a dignity to your bodily existence that matters to God. There is a weight about the fact that you are not merely a spirit or soul, but that you exist physically. Your body matters to God. And as we think about our bodies, we have to seek to understand God's perspective on the body as well. And the first thing that Paul does is he points to the resurrection of Jesus and says, as Jesus was raised, so also you will be raised up from the grave through his power. Your body, though in this form, is temporary. And unless the Lord returns, we will all see death. But your body is is also, in a sense, permanent and eternal because God will raise us up from the dead. There was something new and something miraculous and something changed about Jesus, but what did he show his disciples when he went to them? His scars. It was was his body. There was no body left in the tomb like, oh, just created a new one. That one's dead, discarded, old, thrown away. But it was raised up from the dead. 
And so it gives us a dignity and an understanding that God actually cares about our bodies in an eternal way. Proof number two that Paul lays out for us here is that your bodies are members of, of Christ. Your bodies are members of Christ. Do you guys like to think about your bodies? That was a weird question. Like, just take, take a minute. Like, seriously, I know this is kind of silly. This is why you should come back next week, but take a minute. Like, look, look at your body, and for just a minute, uh, appreciate the various pieces and parts of, of your body. Stop looking at my body. Look at your own body. <laughs> and, and think about the way that God made us. Like, look at your hands. Isn't it wonderful that, like, there's five fingers on each, and, like, there's a thumb? It's really cool. And sometimes, oh man, I'm weird. I'll just tell you that. I, sometimes I look at my body and I like try and figure out like, like the way that things move. I'm like, how does it do that? Like if an engineer, any engineers in here? How hard would it be to, dis, to design the joints that exist in the human body? Like the re, I can do this, people. And that may not seem complicated and cool, but try and engineer it. Go home, grab some metal, some wood, and design it. Make, make a replica. It's incredible, the human body is. And, and it's all these, these members of it. Like, if you chopped off my finger, I would be terribly mad at you. I'm not like, hey, I've got nine more. I'm like, that was my finger. Like, that, that is the essence of this passage, that it takes this perspective. The members that we have of our body are members of Christ. And I want you to take a minute and let that like soak into your mind to actually think about that. Like the way you think of your body physically and the way you protect it, the way you actually care for it, the way that you don't want people to violate it, that is the way Christ cares for your body because you are a member of his body. And from here, Paul moves into this, this, I couldn't think of another way to describe it other than it's an awful illustration. It's it's good, it's necessary, but, but it's pretty terrible to think about. And the illustration that he gives is, shall I then take away the members of Christ? And it's the idea that I gave you earlier, like somebody removing part of your body. Think about that, like somebody taking your body. And they remove a part of it. Like, hey, give me a hand. And literally, they take your hand. And then they take it to do something that, that is tremendously offensive to you. And that's the analogy that, that Paul gives here in, in this section, is that he says, should I, should I take away the members of Christ? And should I then take them and, and make them members of of a prostitute? Should I, should I take the Holy Lord Jesus Christ and would I, would I take his body and removing it from him, go into somebody who, who sells their body and, and unite it and make them, make them one? And Paul exclaims forth, may it never be. 
But then he draws this conclusion that, that we can't help know if, if we understand the scriptures, and, and the Corinthians did. This is what happens when a believer goes to a prostitute. And, and there's no, no need to sit here this morning and pretend, to pretend like the church has stopped dealing with this issue. <laughs> like we read it, and man, we'd like to pretend like, man, I'm so glad that was just... Corinth, and that the church doesn't deal with this anymore. But, it, but if you've been alive long enough, you know, we could all probably roll off a list of famous pastors. But I'll think of people in our lives that we, we've seen and we know, and I guarantee that there are, there are people sitting among us who have struggled with the same thing. That the the sexual appetites of Christians haven't changed. But this point that Paul makes here is weighty. Brothers and sisters, how could you take away the members of our Lord's body and make them one flesh with a prostitute? And to let the awful weight of that decision sink in. To let our hearts and minds be convicted by the eternal gravity of that decision. The spiritual implications that it holds for just a few brief moments of bodily satisfaction. When we think about sex, it's important that we understand that God is the one who created it. It's important to understand that God is the one who, in his infinite wisdom, made a man, and seeing how incomplete that was, fashioned a woman to be wonderfully and marvelously anatomically Compatible. And he did not do so lightly so that we would treat it like a trinket that can be bought. But rather, that God created this sacred union where two distinct humans will come together as they're joined by a covenant that binds them in a lifelong relationship and that they would be united bodily in a powerful way where two become one. And that God designed that to be a physical picture to give us an understanding of a spiritual reality that happens when we are joined to Jesus. And there's nothing sexual about our relationship with Jesus, but he needed or desired to create such a strong 
an intimate and powerful picture that he created marriage to do it. Marriage is the metaphor. So that we could begin to have a grasp and a concept of what it means to be one spirit with the Lord. So we have to understand the cost of distorting this picture and why this act is so sacred and holy and precious to God because of what it's meant to be a picture of, of Jesus Christ being united to his people, the church, as one spirit. So this, this bodily union is meant to picture that and it's only meant to exist between two distinctly different people who both represent humanity, who come together in a covenant and then consummate it in this act. It's marvelous and wonderful and incredibly sacred. And that's what the Lord longs for us to embrace. But it's distorted when his people miss the metaphor and embrace instead Sexual satisfaction that's acceptable in our world, whether it be through prostitution or, or any other form outside of what God has designed. And if you choose to disregard here, you desecrate his glorious design and violently distort what he wants to show to the world. And your distortion will make you miss out on what he wants you to understand as well. That you are members of Christ. Body and spirit. Part of the whole. So what you do with your body in totality matters to Jesus. And it's such of grave importance that, that Paul, the next two words he says are, are flee immorality. This isn't a stand strong. This isn't stand your guard. This isn't stand your ground. It's get out. Run. Whatever you need to do to escape do that. Flee. The only way to find refuge from this is by avoiding it completely. He talks about the manner in which this particular sin impacts us like no other sin does. I was trying to think about that this week. You know, there are other sins that we commit against our bodies, whether it be gluttony or substance abuse or self-harm and a whole host of things where we don't treat well the body that God has given us. And yet, none of these things unite us in the same way. Drugs don't become one with your body. Gluttony, as much as it impacts us, does not become one with your body. And yet, sexual immorality creates this one flesh relationship that perverts the most intimate members of our bodies and subjects them to a oneness that is unfathomable for believers. Flee immorality. Let's keep going. Proof number three is this. Proof number three that the body is not for immorality but for the Lord. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want to point out to you 
is that Paul is writing to members of the Corinthian church who have been sinning in this manner. And the words that he has just said are highly likely to have pierced the conscience and to appropriately apply the guilt that such things do. And yet here in this moment, what does he say to them? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that sitting here among us, if your conscience is guilty and weighed down by over what you have done, these words of gospel grace have to be let to saturate into your mind. That this is not the unpardonable sin. This is not uncovered by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reason this is such a heinous thing is because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you. Whom you have from God. And that you are not your own. That's why this matters to the Lord. When he uses this word temple here, this is not simply the outer place uh, that the, the people would have known, but this is the sacred inner place where God's presence dwelled here on earth. The holy place where only the priests were allowed to go to worship and minister to the Lord. Even into the holy of holies where only the high priest was allowed to go but once a year to make atonement for the people. The presence of God dwelling in that place. And what Paul says here is the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That is what your body is. Given to you from God. And as such, you do not belong to yourself. <laughs> Which is a miraculous thing to think about. Think about that. God wants to live in you. I'm going to guess this morning you didn't wake up thinking, this is my value as a person. God desires to live within me. I was studying this passage and I did not wake up thinking that thought. But that is the sanctity of your existence as a human and as a follower of Jesus Christ. The holiness of who you are. Body and spirit. That the spirit of God desires to dwell within you. He does not let you belong to yourself. But you belong to him. As his treasured possession. His chosen people. And that he bought you. At the cost of his only begotten son. And these are the words that the people who are convicted of their sin need to hear the most. Lest we decide in our own strength that was the last time. Because anybody who's struggled with sin, you know that every time you're convicted by sin and you determine in your heart, in your own strength, that this is the last time, you guarantee it is not the last time. It must be the last time, yes. But we are saved by grace, by grace, through faith in Jesus and not of ourselves. And the reason that we have hope, the reason we have commands like this is because what God has done in our lives already and the message of Jesus not only compels us to change, but enables us to change by his grace through faith in him. If we look back a few verses earlier, in verses 9 through 11, read this with me if you have your Bibles open. Paul writes, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's our concern. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, or excuse me, 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were. But because of what Christ has done, we're not only compelled but enabled to live by grace in this faith in a way that glorifies and honors the Lord, but you will not come by it on your own strength. You come by it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's been given from God. You've been bought with a price. And Paul ends, therefore glorify God in your body. Church, what a marvelous calling that we have here. And if I might say, what a compelling body of evidence that we have that our body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so as we close this time, let's consider those two commands just one more time in each part. The first is flee immorality. Flee immorality. And again, Paul, Paul is addressing prostitution. That's what he's addressing. And yet as he returns to it, he, he returns to all forms of sexual immorality. So again, it's not the only thing they were dealing with. We see that in other chapters. Good news. Next week's message gets the same disclaimer. So just know that. Like Corinthian church had issues. So if you've got issues, keep coming. Do we have issues? We've got issues. And the first thing that we have to do here is really embrace God's design. And until we do that, we won't be knowing what we're fleeing. Again, in, in their culture, prostitution was, was no big deal. I was reading, there was one person, I think it was second century, and he said, we've got our mistresses for our pleasure, we've got our concubines for our daily, daily concubinage, and we've got our wives for having children. It's such a super low view of women. But at this time, they had prostitutes. The temples had prostitutes. It's, it's just, you got sexual desires, that's how you fill it. And the truth is, is, is while uh, there are probably people here who don't buy into that, I think we are certainly tempted by our culture to think and live differently than what, is, what we're called to. We're tempted as Christians to adopt a view of sexuality that is way outside of God's design. And, and our culture is, is constantly, constantly, constantly preaching their, their ethic. It preaches in the sitcoms. It preaches in Disney movies. It preaches in the news. It preaches in the Supreme Court cases. It's constantly preaching an ethic that is, that is different than the biblical ethic. And quickly, the only ethic that, that exists is consent. And I'm thankful that ethic exists. I'm thankful for that. We should rejoice in that. And yet, as disciples of Jesus, we cannot get our, our, our ethics for this issue from our culture. We have to, have to adopt a different issue. And so we're called to repent and turn away and forsake all sex outside of marriage. All sex outside of what God designed. Our culture doesn't believe that. 
we're going to be covering this again, as I said, more in the coming weeks. But, but honestly, as we think about fleeing immorality, it, it does look different. There are different people facing different things in our church. You think about the way a, a single person flees sexual immorality. That's probably going to look different than the way a married person flees sexual immorality. And so, so for us before the Lord, we need to be considering, like, what are those things that are tempting? What are those things where we fail? And not to expose everybody's failures, but to recognize, you know, some, a lot of our failures begin in our mind and the way we think. You see how Paul's addressed this? He, he got here by addressing the mind and the truths that you know. And so holding on to the anchor and truths of the gospel of what God intends for us is one of the best ways to help our minds stay saturated with what God wants from us. To remain in that one spirit union, to cleave to Christ in that way, so that the spirit of him is in us and informs the way that we live in the body. I think, about, I, I think a lot about single people. Uh, one of the things that you have to do is you have to forsake the lie that you can't live without sex. It's just, it's just a lie. The, tr- the truth is, is the majority of our existence as human beings is without sex. The majority of it is. And I hope the majority of your relationships are, are without sex. And so not to embrace that lie. Like this is the ultimate fulfillment. It's not. It's what God has given. And if the Lord blesses you by getting married, it's, it's great. But you, you can live without it. And, and what do I point to in that is just pointing you, like it's easy for you to say, Andrew, pointing you to Jesus. I'm, I'm not your hope. Jesus is. And I love that about the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> he didn't take a wife. You can live without sex. You have a Savior who was tempted as you are but didn't fail. So you have one who you can relate to and who can relate to you. But also one who knows how to succeed and longs and provides you with what you need to succeed. And to live with hope in that regard. To deliver us. Married people need to have their running shoes on too in this regard. You think about King David and how he fell so we can fall as well. That up on his roof he stopped and he lingered as Bathsheba bathed. And you know probably how that story ends with him committing adultery with her. You think, what, what does it take to ignite a fire? A spark. If you've got enough kindling, little dry wood and everything, what's it take? A spark. And there are these moments in our lives where our heart, if it's not near to the Lord, is like dry kindling. And all it takes is a a momentary spark to ignite a fire that is really hard to put out, isn't it? I had a friend growing up, and he said, you know, what did he say? He said, sex is like breathing. You don't know it's a big deal until you're not doing it. And I thought about that. There's a truthfulness of that. But I was thinking about a child in the womb. That if you maintain innocence in this area, you, you actually, you don't need to breathe in the same way everybody else needs to breathe. And so God intends for us to be protected from knowing the power of that desire until it's to be fully expressed and God's grace in that. Uh, but saints, I would just urge us all to be, be aware, to constantly be filling our minds with God's design for these things and to be running Not to stand strong, but to be running from those places where there are embers that may ignite the passions of your flesh to sin. And the final command that he gives, I love that it ends us on a positive in this note, is that glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. What does this mean? It means to make 
the name of Jesus known in the way that you live. You wear the name of Jesus. As a disciple of Jesus, when you tell people, I'm a Christian, you have announced to the world that you wear his name and and they don't know him. And so you are the name of Jesus to the people that you tell that. And God has placed his name upon us. He brings us into this name through adoption in Jesus Christ. And the reputation of that name is supremely important to God. And so as we think about these things, going back to those thoughts in the beginning, do my actions benefit the reputation of my Lord? Do my actions, does the way my, I live in, in body benefit the reputation of Jesus Christ, my Lord? And as his Holy Spirit lives within us, and as we are the members of Jesus Christ, are we as his members reflecting his spirit and desire? The primary way we do this is by living it out. And one more final thing that I'd just like to say on this is, is sometimes as believers, I think, especially in these past few years, I, I'm tempted to think that my primary call is to change our culture's ethics in these arenas. If you were here for us for, for chapter five, remember how Paul said it's, it's not our business to be judging the outsiders, judge the people in the church. Last week, he talked about how the church is going to judge the world. And yet, if we we consider these things in the context, the call for us in this period of time is for us to be changed as God's church and in the way that we live together to bear witness that Jesus is Lord. Not to change our culture's perspective. We may long for that. I don't say that's a wrong desire, but understand that it is not a person's sexual ethic that gets them into the kingdom of God, is it? It's Jesus. Your perspective on, is Jesus Lord, is the question of what enters the kingdom of heaven. And that idea that Jesus is Lord is what converts all of us to no longer embracing our own ethics, but to embracing the ethics that God intends for us to have. That when a person comes to believe and embrace Jesus as Lord, now we can learn the ways of Jesus, even as Paul does here with these believers, uncovering the amazing truths of the good news of Jesus Christ and the impact it has on our, on our lives. So dear saints, your bodies were created by God. You have been given a tremendous dignity through the Son of God who became a man who died for our sin and was raised. And we will be raised as well. And so let it be among us that our bodies are never for sexual immorality, but for the Lord as he is for us. Let us be those who are clinging to Jesus, one in spirit with him. Let's pray. Father, even as we close this time, I continue to pray that your spirit would impress upon each of us the principles that you want us to hold from this. May we be transformed and changed and may your church reflect the image of its glorious Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, let us help one another in these things. Let us come along and bear one another's burdens in these things. Let us 
have the joy of and freedom of confessing our sins to one another in regards to these things that we might help and direct one another to remember the truths of the gospel, even as we see Paul doing here. And let this be a community where the glorious holiness of Jesus Christ shines forth to a way that gives witness and bears witness to a world around us that we are becoming what you have already made us, the people of God. And let it bring honor and praise to the name of Jesus. Amen.